This is a Fubar Radio podcast. Go to fubarradio.com for more details. Screen Talk with Dan Clark on Fubar Radio. Hello and welcome to this edition of Screen Talk, uh, show number 12, folks, and, and another great one for you. I'm going to kickstart the show straight away with music. I'm not going to do a long intro, but um, this is from the movie True Romance. Now, I think I was I was about 18, 6, 17 or something when I saw this. This was the first film I ever saw at the uh, Prince Charles Cinema in about 92 or 93 or something and uh, what I love about this piece of music is it's beautiful and uplifting and warm and kind of almost sentimental even though it's the score to an uber violent blood fest of a movie this is Hans Zimmer's You're So Cool from True Romance Screen Talk with Dan Clark on FUBAR Radio Oh, what a beautiful piece of music. Um, another interesting thing about that song is it's, it's, it's exactly the same, almost note for note, as the music from Badlands, which I think is Carl Orff's Gas Gorsenhauer. Um, uh, but there's no mention of it in True Romance or the Hans Zimmer. They don't, he doesn't say based on, but it's exactly the same piece of music. Uh, I don't want to create a legal battle here. I'm sure other people have noticed it. But it's, uh, it's a weird thing, and I'm sure it must be intentional because Badlands is a film about a young couple in love who are killing people, and so is True Romance. So there must be like, oh, yeah, why don't we pay homage to that? Um, right, now, today we have an amazing show. Uh, another brilliant guest, uh, the writer, director, and star, or, or co-lead, I don't know how you... How you st- say it, but uh, from the recent Channel 4 comedy Flowers, uh, Mr. Will Sharp. Uh, but first, as is becoming a regular thing, I am joined by Shortlist Magazine film editor, Mr. James Gill I Am. Do you like my new nickname for you, James? I'll take that, thanks very <laughs> much. Because you do remind me of Will I Am. We're very similar. I, yeah. mean, <laughs> I mean, the number of people who stop me in the streets and say, were you in the Black Eyed Peas? Yeah. Or, what's Fergie really like? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but no, I can confirm that Maybe I, they think I you're um, Prince Andrew. Maybe they do. Yeah. Maybe they do. Do you get the Fergie reference? I do, yeah, I do. you just didn't find it funny. Do you remember... Uh, well, the thing, with, the thing with Fergie, I'm of an age where if you say her name, and I don't yeah. mean Sir Alex, I mean that... Sarah. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember Toegate on the. That was like massive news at the time. I don't remember Toegate. Front page of all the papers. What she is was, Toegate? She was. I don't want to get executed for saying this, but she was, <laughs> she was papped sucking on a, a boyfriend's toes while sunbathing. Wow. It was It was massive at the time. I'm talking like. I think I was in Centre Parks on holiday when it happened. Yeah. When it. When it I'm saying that. Where yeah. were you when Toegate broke? Because <laughs> if it's JFK. Do you not remember Toegate? No, I do not remember oh, it. Man. I thought it was a place in like Shropshire or something. Beautiful this time of year is yeah. Toegate. <laughs> right, so um, what, what news do you bring with you this, uh, this week, James? Well, Justin Lin, the director of the Fast Furious movies, I think he did four of them. He did, he did three, four, five, six. He did, he, my my maths is correct. Yeah. <laughs> he did four of them. Uh, Vin Diesel has personally asked him to return to direct the tenth and probably the final instalment of the Fast. And I mean, they're pretty fast and pretty furious yeah, by now. Yeah. Uh, and Justin Lin, I think, is going to pick Space Jam 2 over Fast and Furious 10. Now, um, I'm sure that's surprising, right? That is a weird choice. A film, a sequel to a film from like 15 years ago that's not really considered a classic or anything. I think there's a lot of love for Space Jam because the Looney Tunes characters are just wonderful. It's got Michael Jordan in it, and Bill Murray is, is being very yeah, B- yeah. Bill Murray in it. But I know what you mean. It's not. It's not iconic. It's not as. I mean, that when you've got the pick of the crop, do you go to Space Jam Two? Is I guess what I'm asking. Well, now I'm about to. Uh, I'm, I'm going to cr- come across horrendously with, with what I'm about to say here. But I was lucky enough to speak with Justin Lin well, that, last week. It's your job, so don't, don't is, be ashamed know, of it. So, honestly, I feel so guilty. It came up at an Always Be Comedy recently. I had to during a break. I had to interview a, a film director because. Yeah. It was LA time, and always be comedy happens at eight PM, and mm-hmm. and I had to apologise to the audience. 
Because you had to go off and I interview a so film director. Yeah, because <laughs> I'm aware that it sounds so. It sounds so. Oh, did you really? Yeah, you you yeah, know what yeah, I mean. Yeah. Uh, but Justin Lin, his his reasoning for taking Space Jam Two, if should he definitely do that, is the fact that he has a six year old son who has never been able to see a single thing that his dad has made. Mm. So it's almost like he doesn't believe that his dad is a director because his dad leaves first thing in the morning, spends all day on a film set. But there is no proof for the poor lad because he's six. He can't watch Star Trek Beyond this summer. He can't watch any Fast Furious movie. So uh, a big reason for him taking Space Jam 2 would be the fact that he could say to his son, look, your dad is actually a director. Is uh, Fast and Furious movies, are they actually unsuitable for six-year-olds? Yes, there's quite a bit of... Is there swearing? There's quite a bit of swearing and also... sexy time? A little bit of sexy time. But the violence is... Hilarious, really? <laughs> yeah. See, I've, I don't think I've watched a single one, like, which is ridiculous. Seeing as you know, I host a film show, but they've just never appealed to me. And yet, there must be something appealing about them because they make so much money. They're, they're jo- I mean, they're they're joyous in that they are ludicrous. You know, it's cars flying through buildings. Yeah. I mean, the fact that the humans in these films are practically invincible. Um, yeah, yeah, because yeah. they parachute. In cars and things like but, that, but right? But more than that, apparently there is... I, I don't want to get sued, but there is a strong rumour that each of the megastars in the films has it written into their contracts that they are not allowed to lose a fight. <laughs> so the fight scenes... I you going to say a car. So the fight... Like, oh, they yeah. lose a lot of cars. Yeah, yeah. The fight scenes go on forever, but say Vin Diesel is not allowed to lose a fight scene because it is in his contract. And The Rock allegedly has the same clause. So they'll have these heroic fights that go on for ages, but it will invariably end up a draw. <laughs> Yeah, or, okay, if some poor always... sap, or some poor sap who might just have joined the franchise as, say, a baddie, they will probably lose the fight because... Well, we, we know that anyway about well, no, films some, with heroes, right? Well, some baddies don't lose. So Statham, for example, has become such a staple of the movies that you can't lose Jason. No. Well, why would we be watching a film about a guy that loses all his fights? That would be weird, wouldn't it? Well, that would, I could be the star of that film. Well, Just I, an ordinary guy that uh, gets into a few scrapes. but there is, there is nobility in losing a fight, though, which yeah. is why Rocky has endured. Yeah. But the Fast Furious movies is a bit like... It is essentially like watching a superhero movie, really. They don't have a cape, but they are really... Invincible, su- they yeah. They are superheroes. And uh, uh, to me, it just feels like a sort of big-budget uh, version of Top Gear, but with Vin Diesel instead of Jeremy Clarkson. Because, actually, the stunts they do on Top Gear are just as ludicrous, really, aren't they? Pre- you've pretty much nailed it. Yeah. You've Pretty much nailed it. Yeah. Top Gear add Vin Diesel equals Fast and Furious. Yeah. Okay, well, let's not spend too much time talking about the Fast and Furious. What else have we got? Well, I suppose going on to the superhero theme, mm-hmm. uh, Captain America is passing a billion... I was about to say he's passing water. He's quite an old guy, to be fair. Captain America <laughs> he's is... Been, he's about 100 <laughs> he now, He must be an he? old dude. Yeah. So I would watch that yeah, in a yeah. sequel. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. watch Captain America passing water. Uh, he's about to pass a billion dollars worldwide, which, when you think about it, is incredible. So you might listen to that and think, billion dollars, pretty standard these days. But that's the third movie in the Captain America series and the umpteenth in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's the fact that that is... And also Captain Usually America, sequels are sort of diminishing returns, right? Yeah, pretty much. And also, in this country, Captain America, is, it, because of his name, is never going to be one of our favourite superheroes. Yeah. He's not Spider-Man. He's not Superman. He's not Batman. So for Captain America to take a billion... He's not even got man at the end of his name. He's not even got man. He should be <laughs> Captain America, man. Captain uh, American, man. <laughs> So for that to take a billion, I think, is just incredible. And the Marvel Cinematic Universe has now passed 10 billion. Well, so you and I talk a lot about um, about our difference in opinion on the superhero phenomenon, shall we call it. Uh, I'm just a bit like, do we need this many superhero movies? But the point that you make quite clearly this morning was... There's, if if you've got what's it you said if you've if got you superhero have, fatigue yes. you probably just just leave the planet if you have superhero fatigue you need to leave the planet yeah. because these the, fig, the figures I am reading yeah. out there suggest that, that this insane. will just run I mean for example Batman versus Superman has taken something like 
eight or nine hundred million yeah. worldwide, and that's considered a flop. Oh, I mean, not God. not a flop, but you know what I mean. It's yeah, considered it falling, falling or... short of expectations. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I mean, they're they're here to stay. What I would say is because this big thing of superhero fatigue keeps coming up, I think the positive to take. I mean, I always see the positive, yeah. but the positive to take out out of that is that it does put pressure on these filmmakers to make sure these films are as good as possible. So uh, Deadpool was was a, a wonderful film, a, re- a real pleasant surprise for a lot of people. And Captain America Civil War is one of the strongest uh, films that Marvel have, have ever made. So uh, the, the, the great thing is, because so many get made, there is that survival of the fittest thing that comes in. These movies have to be exceptional. For, what, for, for my the, question is, what is different about each of these films other than the action set pieces? Or is that all that matters? No, because I, to me, it just seems like, especially when you do the origin story of nearly every different superhero, it's sort of same story, different cape. That's how it feels to me. So, I mean, Marvel have, have had that criticism levelled at them, and they've actually lampooned the fact that so many of their films are too similar. There's the Michael Douglas gag in Ant-Man, for example, mm-hmm. where they reference the fact that they are aware that that is a criticism. I would say those movies are so much more than action set pieces, though. It's it's the people who work on the films, and also it's the talent they manage to yeah. get. So Ant-Man is a, is a good uh, a good example. It, he says, referencing his own example. But it's a good example <laughs> because, because they attracted Paul Rudd. Now, any film fan... Would lie down in traffic for Paul Rudd because he. We all wish we were Paul Rudd. The guy is awesome. So the fact that they make those slightly left field choices. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy is another good yeah, example. Yeah. Chris Pratt was not a, a, a megastar that, before that movie. They cast that film so beautifully. In a nutshell, they know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. It's oh, not they just definitely. A, it's not yeah. just a case of uh, Marvel in particular. It's not just a case of let's pick a megastar. It's a case of casting it very carefully. Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man. Yeah. I mean that guy was better known for getting into into trouble. The guy is now. He was actually uninsurable. He was at uninsurable. The time. Yeah. Uh, I mean Robert Downey Jr. There was a time where where the story his story was one of squandered talent. Mm-hmm. Where Whereas now, I think of him as one of the most charismatic actors well, I've ever seen. And he's so, he's almost like establishment now. He you is, know, when he, he really was is. so uh, anti everything up for a period. I always loved him. Always, there was a period in the sort of late 90s where he just, it was like he's just not gonna. He's just not going to sort his shit out. But You're he still did. For him, he still did like supporting roles in films, and he always just completely stole the show. I mean, I love the film Wonder Boys. Have you seen Wonder Boys? I have seen Michael Wonder Boys. Douglas. Really underrated, cool little film directed by Curtis Hansen and Downey Jr. is just he just every scene he's in, it's just like who is this man? He is amazing, um, and then. Finally, it's, they managed to make it work that he could be the star he always meant to be. Do you know what I mean? It is amazing. After years and years, like, I think he's he was in like some of those like weird science and stuff in the mid '80s. So he has been around a long time. He was part of the what were they the called brat the, frat, pack. The, the brat pack? Yeah, yeah. The brat pack. That's right. You're the rat pack, the brat pack, the, and then the frat pack. Yeah. And he was the brat pack. Can't wait. But the dude is the dude's a survivor. He is. I, I actually sometimes think people with uh, addictions uh, and problems often become brilliant um, uh, stars because all that energy and all that time that they're trying to focus not thinking about their previous addiction, they really put into their career and into their work. So there's quite a lot of examples, which sometimes isn't a great... <laughs> I think like kids think, oh, right, so I could go off and do heroin for a few years and then afterwards sort my Become shit out a mega and, star. Yeah, and earn millions of dollars. I, I agree with you 100%. I, I totally Although agree. it's also, obviously, being serious, a good example of sorting your shit out. But there is there are mixed messages there. But um, you're, right, you're, right, you're right, there is definitely something in that. It's focusing all that energy, and then they just throw themselves. The, the, their career becomes their, their addiction, I yeah. guess. Yeah, absolutely. What else we got? So uh, Disney are now planning a live-action remake of The Little Mermaid. Now, some of you might just think, well, I won't go see that, which is fine, but what it probably means is that Disney will be plundering their entire back catalogue now and remaking the lot of them as live-action remakes. We're going to do our five favourite Disney movies sometime, I think, because it's not a a brand that I often think about in terms of my favourite movies, but actually, just even thinking about it for five minutes earlier, I was like, oh, wow, this... There's a lot that actually means so much to me from my youth. So we'll do that. We'll, we'll touch upon that. But I agree, yeah. They're, uh, they're even doing a Mary Poppins sequel, aren't they? That's right, With they uh, are. Emily Blunt. Yes. 
I think she's agreed, or I don't know if that's... That's a good choice. Yeah. She's what everyone loves, Emily Blunt. Yeah, yeah. Um, what about this uh, sketch that uh, is doing the rounds from SNL? Do you find that... We, we might not have time for this. <laughs> Do you find that there are certain actresses who women love, and then for whatever reason there are certain actresses who women really loathe with a, with a passion? Yeah. And em- but Emily Blunt is one of, the peop- one of the few who everyone would agree, everyone loves Emily Blunt. Yeah, why? I, I'm not entirely sure why that is. Maybe her... Um, off-screen uh, and not antics, but like her interviews and the things that she does aren't getting her any kind of um, reputation or anything. She's, she seems like quite a straightforward. She seems to have her yeah. shizzle together, doesn't she? Yeah, that's what I'm trying. She's to say. never disappeared up her own backside. She seems nice. She seems funny. She's got. Has more anyone than ever just... been able to do that? Ex- I wanted I'm... to have tried it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so this SNL sketch, um, you sent me the link the second you saw it. Yes. Um, I, knew, I knew you'd enjoy I, it. I, I fucking loved it. Uh, why don't you explain, uh, without giving away the, sort of the real big joke of it, what the sketch is? So what, what I will say is I'm a, I'm a huge Saturday Night Live fan, and so I can speak with authority when I say that Saturday Night Live, historically, I think to the outsider, some some people just assume that it's always amazing. Yeah. It's not. It is a hit-and-miss show. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there is a biography on the show where the, the writers of the biography openly admit that it is up and down. Well, of course. How do you have exactly. a hit rate when you're doing a show, an hour show every week and live? It's just not put. If you could do that, then... You'd have be- lightning in a bottle. Yeah. <laughs> so some miss, some hit. However, they produced a sketch in, the, in season 41's finale that I think is one of the finest. I've watched it so many times already. Yeah. You know, because sometimes we're guilty of short-term thinking. So you might see a sketch and go, that's the best thing I've ever seen. And then you sleep on it. Ah, oh, no, it's not. But uh, I've watched that a few times this week and it's glorious. So it's, it's a loving spoof pastiche of Dead Poets Society with also a nod to films such as... Uh, Goodbye, Mr. Chips, which is probably where they've got the title from. Mm-hmm. Farewell, Mr. Bunting. So Fred Armisen, an ex-SNL member uh, who played Barack Obama when he, when he was a mm. cast member. Was he um, hosting the show or something that week? He was back yeah, as yeah. host that yeah, week. Yeah. Okay. And so he plays the Robin Williams-type figure of the teacher who has lost his job because he was too much of a maverick. Uh, so uh, he has James to... Re- did a little wobble. I did a little, little wobble there. I, yeah. I, really, I really methoded. Yeah. <laughs> he becomes a bit of a maverick. Daniel Day-Lewis would have gone, that was good wobbling. Uh, so he has to come back and interrupt a class to collect his belongings and it's a nod to the captain. My well, captain. it's almost shot for shot um, the end scene of... Anyway, well, check it out. It's on the uh, SNL uh, YouTube channel. It's really fucking funny. Um, but it got me thinking a lot about Peter Weir, the director of Dead Poets Society. And Dead Poets, right, was a film for me, a really pivotal film. I, was, I think I was 13 when I saw that, and it was the first film I snuck into a 15-certificate movie for in the Beckenham ABC. Beckenham ABC. Nice. And, um, Beckenham. <laughs> and I... Uh, it was the first film that probably wasn't an action film or a comedy or, you know, like a grown-up drama in a way that I think I ever saw of my own accord, and it completely changed the way I looked at films. Now, I sometimes feel like it's been given over the years, it's sort of tarnished with, like, it's a bit cheesy or a bit naff, but I think it's, you know, it's a really beautiful film. And then I was thinking more about Peter Weir and again like we spoke last week about Rob Reiner and all the great films he's directed even though he's never really shouted out as one of the all time greats Peter Weir got an, also got an amazing CV of movies right an You've incredible got- career yeah and also responsible for bringing some of the finest performances of proper you know Hollywood icons of their career I still think to this day that Witness controversially, because I know everyone would say Star Wars or or Raiders of the Lost Ark, I think Witness is Harrison Ford's best performance, and it's his best movie. I love the film Witness so hard. There's a scene in Witness, I apologise if I'm jumping too far ahead here. No, no, no. There's a scene in Witness, dear listener, that I I would put into my top five all-time greatest scenes ever. Is it the corn? No. It's the scene where Lucas Haas is looking into the cabinet in the police station and oh, he recognises the, the faces. Oh, oh, that one, right, yeah. And Harrison Ford, I believe, is on the phone and Harrison Ford spots Lucas Haas. He sees what he's looking at and in slow motion, 
Harrison Ford knows what Lucas Haas has seen. He knows what's going on. And as he stands up, it's uh, uh, if I had hair, it would be standing yeah. on end. I think it's just the most perfect scene because that connection between the two of them. Well, my favourite scene from that film is when he beats up one of the uh, people that oh, are picking on. Because yes. it's so gut-wrenching because you go, okay, he's being a hero, but he's also being a tremendous dick because he's doing everything that's against what the Amish people believe in. And he properly beats up this the, the great thing about that scene is that every now and then I, I love in a film a, a scene where you'd be sat on the sofa and you actually say out loud get in there <laughs> and when Harrison Ford does beat this up is, see, this is where you and I are different I'm going I'm thinking about the moral complexities no, of no, like no. well yeah you know you're beating him up because he's picking on them but you know like you're doing everything they disbelieve you're like just fucking hit him stick up for him Harrison <laughs> and then the old guy says uh, uh, says something like no, no English it is not our way and yeah. Harrison Ford said, but it's mine. Does he say mine? He doesn't say the American way or something. No, he okay, doesn't. That would have been even worse. Oh, my God. That oh, wouldn't happen oh, to Peter Weir film. But Peter it's Weir the American way. It's, it's the Trump Chuck, way. Chuck Norris would have said that. Yeah. But it's the American way. <laughs> uh, that's, that is a wonderful scene. It's where the guys wave the ice cream into the guy from yeah, Die yeah. Hard's nose. Is yeah, yeah. uh, Vigo Mortensen's one of the yes, um, Amish? Yeah, young, young Vigo. Um, he followed that up with... I don't uh, know much about his... Story. He followed he followed the witness up, Peter Weir did, with um, The Mosquito Coast, which was also Harrison Ford. And that's a weird little film. Like, I love it. I think it's great. But it's so... And um, River Phoenix plays his River son. Phoenix. And have you seen it? It's no. like they go... He basically forces his family to go and live off of the land. And they go and live in some sort of tropical... But he's so kind of um, determined and uh, uh, stubborn that he, even though it's going hor horribly wrong, he's, he just won't give up. He won't let... And his family were like, Dad, can we just go back and live in a normal house? And you've got to watch it. It's a really okay, interesting you, film. Yeah. Um, what other classic? He's done The Truman Show, obviously. Uh, Gallipoli is a great movie. Yeah, and The Year of Living Dangerously, both Gibson movies. The, um, the, the Truman Show, I, I would go so far as to say that that, that will be remembered as, as an all-time classic. And when you re-watch it now, it still holds up. as The world he creates in that, the one, the one in which Truman lives, is so believable and authentic that it, that is what really stays with you. And also, um, strangely still very, very sort of uh, relevant, even though you would have thought, oh, yeah, we're a bit over all that sort so of. So relevant now, yeah. isn't it? Um, Master and Commander. A cla an amazing film. Fantastic. Again, I think weirdly a bit, I, I'm, I feel like I'm saying underrated all the time, but... No, but it probably is a bit underrated. Yeah. And also, because Patrick O'Brien wrote so many novels based on those characters. Right. The movie was... The, the film was so good, and there was so much left to, left to explore. I know that Russell Crowe says that when he's in England, that's the film he gets bothered about the most. Really? Yeah, and it tends oh, to wow. be an older English guy who will bump into him and say something like... So, uh, when are we doing another uh, Patrick O'Brien film? And, he, and for whatever reason, it's just not happened. But oh. there's, there's, uh, I would love for Crow and uh, Peter Weir to revisit those movies. That would be amazing. Yeah. Um, Green Card, Fearless. Green Card was a big hit. It Green was, a big, was hit. a big commercial hit. Fearless, I think, a flawed film, but an amazing performance from Jeff, Jeff Bridges. Bridges. And I haven't seen The Way Back yet, which I hear is good. The Way... Uh, no? It's... It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's pretty you stodgy. Went there, you went down a, a, a little... You went down a tap there. Uh, I, I say this of The Way Back. It, uh, <laughs> if it's ever shown at the cinema, go see it at the cinema. Because if you watch it at home... I promise you will look Not at your phone oh, right. or, okay. you know, okay. oh, that, that washing up, better get I'm, done. I mean, he is like in his 80s now or something. I think, so he's, maybe he's, I think he's early 70s. There's a, there's a film he has in development called The Keep, which is it sounds like a, a, a horror, which I hope gets made just because mm. it would be another P Peter Weir movie. Well, here's to Peter Weir. We love you here at Screen Talk. We love you here, Peter <laughs> Weir. <laughs> Very good. I, uh, I tw last week I tweeted Carl Reiner. Oh, I saw that. Because yeah. Rob Reiner is yeah. not on Twitter, so I tweeted Carl to say Dan yeah. and I yeah. made a case. Made a case that your your son is one of the greats. And um, nothing. I mean, literally nothing. What a fucker! <laughs> come on, believe. come on, Carl. Carl, mate. Uh, if you listen to Rob Reiner interviews, uh, uh, there's one, there's a podcast somewhere, it might be the Mark Maron one, where he talks about how uh, his dad, Carl Reiner, and uh, Mel Brooks, um, 
Mel Brooks, am I thinking? Mel Brooks? Yes. Yeah. Are, um, they both lost their wives, sadly. That's right. And yes. they're just, uh, they hang out all they the do. time. They do. Just a couple of old mates, you know, knocking about. Uh, Two icons of American icons. comedy. Yeah. Can you imagine? I wonder what they talk about. Mel Brooks the is a state an awesome of comedy, dude. probably. Because Mel Brooks produced The Elephant Man. Did he? Yes. Oh, I'll tell you what, the looks that I've just got from the, the guys what, in the, the studio. Lynch? Yeah, Mel Brooks produced that. Um, so I, did, I always thought it was funnier than people gave it credit but they, for. But someone, so I, I saw an interview with Mel Brooks and someone said, would you like to have directed that? And Mel Brooks said that he would have loved to have directed that. But uh, the phrase he used was that uh, by then he'd, he'd already painted himself into a corner. Which is well because he'd made so many yeah. crazy comedies. I know. Poor but, guy. What a tough situation to be in. Oh, but, oh. I, but I, I I've think painted myself into a million dollar he it, corner. He said it with a smile on his face. Yeah. I, I mean, I there's. I think there's such. Mel Brooks is such a, a warm and funny guy. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I tell you, he's one dude I'd love to meet. Mel Brooks. I know a writer, right? This, and I can't say his name because he'd kill me if I said this. A writer who lives and works in LA. He said he was he, ha- he was working on a job. Is it Drew Pierce? No, it's not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's not the only person I know about that. Uh, he was working on a studio lot, like Warner's or uh, Paramount somewhere. And with the job, he got an office, and in the office above him was Mel Brooks. Stop it! And then Stop. one. One day he walked past and he sort of poked his head in and said, hey guys, what are you up to? And they got chatting. You're joking! The next day he did the same. By a week later, they saw him coming in and they were like, oh God, uh, Mel's coming around again. We just, they were like, do we, can we say, look, we just need to do some work, Mel. You know, we've heard quite a lot of your stories. No, yeah. that is the definition no, of I ungrateful. I know, what? I know. But I love the idea that it doesn't matter because obviously I adore Mel Brooks and I think he's amazing, he's a genius. But I love the idea that even your heroes could outstay their world. Like, you know, uh, I really do love your work, but I've got this uh, script to finish. You know, I'm on a bit of a deadline. Um, So uh, our next guest coming up uh, is the very talented writer, director, actor, uh, Will Sharp. Uh, This is his first choice of song. Uh, It's a piece of score from the film Solaris, the original by Edward Artemiev. I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly. Um, I'm sure he can correct me. Uh, This is the Solaris theme. Screen Talk with Dan Clark on Fubar Radio. What a piece of music. How, did I say that right, Will? Ed, I don't know, I think Artemiev? so. Artemiev? I think Artemiev? it's actually by Bach. Oh, is it? But I think he was the composer that worked with Tarkovsky oh, and I did the rest of the score. Or maybe he played it, maybe he did an arrangement for it. I don't actually know that. Are you a fan of the, the film? Yeah, I haven't watched it for a while. but um, Where do you stand on the remake? I haven't seen it, but apparently it's actually quite good. Yeah. I've, um, I've not seen, seen the original, but I've seen the remake. Uh, okay. And a review I read, I think in Time Out, said, as remakes go, it's pretty good. And if you haven't got time for the original one because it's quite long, then this, yeah. is the good, this is the good sort of <laughs> snippet version. Yeah. Um, but I'm a big Soderbergh fan, so uh, yeah, even too. his bad films I'm a big fan of, just because I like that he does still mix it up with weird stuff so will sharp everybody welcome to the show will sharp i don't know what's order to say your uh, your sort of titles is it uh, do you consider yourself actor first writer director uh d- i don't know you don't know <laughs> what do you say when people go oh so what do you do which is always a horrible question uh, just i don't know just kind of curl up and go i make <laughs> i, I make stuff yeah it's yeah. embarrassing <laughs> is it why is that such a horrible question when people go what do you do because i've never liked it i mean i guess i don't i don't necessarily see those things as different disciplines mm-hmm. anyway so i think often feels like they're kind of part of the same thing mm-hmm. you know making something as you say and um, you um you uh, uh, recently just had your own show. It was like three weeks ago, Flowers. I think so, yes. Yeah. And this was a show that you managed to, which is quite an achievement uh, to write, direct, and be a regular character in. How did you pull that off? How uh, did you convince Channel 4 that you were the man to... I mean, I... I don't I, know. I mean, it was a great... Just, I mean, very lucky, obviously, to have had that opportunity. It was just a slow... Did you just do it process. bit by bit? Yeah, bit by yeah. bit, I think, step by step. So I did a really long treatment for it, mm-hmm. uh, which I sort of did for my... It sort of came about because some of the stuff I was pitching, people would say that they kind of liked the writing, but it felt like I was trying to sort of second guess 
what they were after, what they might commission, what might get made. Yeah. And they were sort of saying, you don't need to do that. Who was, who was that? The, the just production, production companies, company. yeah. yeah. And so they were like, just write what you want to write. Mm-hmm. And that's how Flowers came about. And so I spent quite a lot of time just putting this quite extensive treatment together, pulling images together, because it's not really very pitchable show in a way well that was going to be one of my questions is how do you pitch or first of all for people that may not have seen it which i recommend you do and it's on uh, the e4 what's it called all4.com or whatever the thing is called basically the iplayer for (laughs) channel four and i'm sure it's also on amazon and all those things as well right uh so um but how would you describe the show another horrible question yeah uh (laughs) it centers around uh I pr- I'd probably fair to say dysfunctional family. Mm-hmm. I um, think that's fair to say. <laughs> yeah. And they all, all of the characters in their different ways have um, some kind of l- sort of l- carry a kind of loneliness or sort of some kind of problem, mm-hmm. personal problem that they're trying to work through. Uh, Julian Barrett plays Morris, the father, who's mm-hmm. a children's book author. And that kind of fairy tale vibe bleeds out into the world of the show a little bit Mm -hmm. um it's a slightly murky uh world uh slightly cartoonish maybe slightly heightened yeah uh people um, some when the reviews were coming out they were saying dark quite a lot which i didn't think it was i think that's a slightly misleading uh sort of um description because often we associate dark with like maybe they're doing I don't know, like rape jokes or right, like, you know, yeah. do you know what I mean? It's not. It, maybe it's just because it was quite dark in the way it was shot. It was it literally a, dark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, I, I completely agree. I think uh, Nomi Depair, the producer, and I, we came to describe it as a sort of sad comedy rather mm-hmm. than a dark comedy, just because we were really careful to to try and make sure it wasn't willfully dark ever, yeah, yeah. and it wasn't trying to shock anyone or surprise anyone. There are difficult issues that are dealt with within the show and it was always really important to all of including the channel you that we were never making fun of for example uh, morris the character that julian plays mm-hmm. is uh you quite quickly discover suffering from some kind of depression yeah. and we well d- isn't the the, op- the very opening shot i know this is a spoiler but it's um, not really is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he tries uh unsuccessfully to kill himself if he yeah. had been successful that would have been i don't know how you really would have got julian yeah. to do it <laughs> hey will you play this part he's in it for three seconds um but uh yeah he tries to kill himself but fails so, so yeah. you kind of know i guess again that's probably where the dark thing comes from i think so but and i understand why but i think it might be a slightly perhaps arguably lazy shorthand because yeah. it, it is it does deal with dramatic uh and occasionally difficult subject matter mm-hmm. but i don't think it's a kind of black comedy or dark comedy in the way that it's traditionally used no because there's also a, a bit of silliness and you said yourself a little bit of cartoonishness yeah i guess some of the darkness or sadness uh is that they are even though they're a family that all even though the two twin children are in their mid-twenties is that right yeah even though they all live together which is actually quite weird in this day and age yeah. uh, especially if you live in like a city or something um but they're all almost as though they're walking around in completely their own worlds yeah you know so that loneliness <coughs> yeah um, that, yeah that which I, I think people would probably connect to if you if they weren't like oh god this is if they didn't watch the first five minutes and think oh this is dark comedy if they yeah. stayed with it and went actually i relate to these themes you know well, that was um, excuse me. That was one of the nice things about how people seemed to be watching it was that depending on who you were, you connected to a different part of the show, mm-hmm. different character, different scene. You know, in a given episode, seemed to resonate with different people more. So, you know, talking about it afterwards, some people thought that it was all about one scene, mm-hmm. and other people thought it was actually the episode was centered around a different scene, okay. just because of I guess who they were relating to the most. And, yeah, yeah. Um, so that was nice, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> is it all because I'm halfway through at the moment? Is it all uh, linear or not linear, but like the timeline? Because uh, it literally picks up where it left off uh, on the previous episode. Does it do that? pretty much all the uh, way through the there's series there's a couple of gaps we did sort of like solidify that at some point where it was kind of i think episode two happened straight after episode mm-hmm. one episode three is like maybe a few days later mm-hmm. 
and then oh I can't remember <laughs> but like it happens over a relatively short space of time like at most a few weeks and was that a reason for why they decided to put it out every night of one week rather than the traditional it might have been I think it might have been part of it that came about because um, the channel Channel 4 quite liked it and so they had a meeting that's nice of them that was nice it? yeah and it was, yeah. was all of a like surprise this. i yeah. guess like or they had some kind of meeting that i don't really understand like in, how i imagine it, it's probably not <laughs> yeah, like imagine sort of graphs and yeah. like spreadsheets <laughs> and stuff but basically they just had a scheduling meeting about it and yeah. decided that it would be the best way to release it i think partly just as a way of saying that it's a bit different Mm-hmm. So they release it a bit differently. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also because it is a sort of continuing narrative across mm-hmm. the series, it just I think encourages you to if you started to carry on watching till the end, which was something that we all wanted people to see. Yeah. You know. um, and I guess in this day and age where Netflix and Amazon put series out in yeah. their entirety, yeah. people are more used to it. I did wonder when I heard that it was doing that because I was aware of the show. I know Julian and you also used Layla Hoffman who was mm-hmm. in my show, um, which I was She's pleased great. to say. She's yeah. amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, sh- uh, I knew people. I knew uh, of you. So I was... Um, and I'd heard good things, so I was excited. And I heard that they were putting it out in one week. And I couldn't work out without speaking to you or any of Channel 4. In my head, I was like, is that good? In one way, that's good. But there's something about going... At, you're on telly for longer if it goes out right, once a week, yeah. if you know what I mean. And you've got that momentum. But I don't know. I guess there's pros and cons for both. Probably. I mean, initially, uh, I sort of... I was like, oh, that sounds like a, a weird idea. But yeah. then within an hour of talking about it with the producer, we both sort of realised that it did seem to make a lot of sense. And I I sort of, each shows that I like, you know, I might seek out the first episode, watch it when it comes out, if mm-hmm. I'm free, uh, make a point of that. And then if I like it as much as I think I will, I'll try my best to watch the second one. But with the best will in the world, I just sort of, thinking back to shows that I've enjoyed. I haven't really watched them when they've gone out to the end. Mm-hmm. I've sp- it's been a month or two later. I've suddenly gone, oh, I need to finish watching that. And then yeah, I'll watch yeah. the rest of it on a Sunday when I have to be free. So I don't know. It kind of is. I thought it was a forward thinking move uh, as opposed to a sort of yeah, backward thinking move. That definitely, makes sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is, uh, I mean, if anything, you must have just been, because this is your first series, right? So yeah. you must have just been absolutely chuffed that it's, going out because (laughs) you made uh, a movie before this Black Pond and that was self-finance was it? That was where we raised I made that we co-directed that with my friend Tom Kingsley Mm -hmm. uh, and we've just finished uh, our second feature which we Mm -hmm. made in a similar way which is called The Darkest Universe and will be on at the East End Film Festival Um, When's that? That is we're on uh, the 1st of July at Genesis Cool Um, So when you do a film that's uh, like as we talk about this a lot here where people think that the hard thing is getting a film made but the hard thing is getting it seen by people and distribution so to a tv show knowing you're making something that would definitely have a life yeah must be quite a liberating feeling yeah and terrifying as well (laughs) yeah Um, (laughs) what you want it to be in the corner where no (laughs) one sees it there's a kind of safety to that i suppose like if um so it was really that was a like just on a day-to-day level one pro of it going out Mm -hmm. in a week was that it was just a really quick ah and then it was over (laughs) and then could kind of you have a slightly different attitude to having a tv show some people are like i want more i want more i want a bit more limelight i'm Um, happiest making it i think i do remember uh uh, and that's the way it should be i think you know enjoy the process but i do remember hearing a story this was when chris morris used to do a lot of tv and especially with brass eye when it was getting more and more edgier that he would just com- he would go away when it goes out. And yeah. Just sort of. I don't know if this is true, but I think with that kind of thing, probably there's a reason behind it. He just doesn't want right. to hear any of the uh, furor. But yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I can understand that. I think I think we get a bit too focused on the end product and how it goes sometimes. But uh, so when you did Black Pond, this was something. Um, this was when did you make Black Pond? Uh, this is probably wrong, but I think it we first screened it in 2011 okay. kind of end of 2011 so five years yeah yes. yeah um this is your first movie we all know movies are hard to make uh hard to get off the ground 
I always thought you um, love the film, by the way, and I love all the casting choices. But okay. I thought strange casting choices because you pick you had. Chris Langham, who had mm-hmm. recently gone through a lot of controversy, and Simon Amstel, who I know and love, um, who but at the time was definitely known as a presenter. Mm-hmm. And I was like, uh, you, do you just want to make life a bit harder for yourself by picking, <laughs> like, you know, curveball casting? Well, Chris, with Chris... What was the idea behind that casting? Well, with Chris, we picked him genuinely because we thought he would be the best person mm-hmm. for the role and um, he is great isn't it? Yeah, yeah I think his performance is amazing and uh, in in terms of like all of the other sides to that question of why we cast Chris I would probably like the best thing to do is just direct you to Tom and I wrote a piece in the Independent on Sunday about why we did it mm-hmm. and it's because it it's, is quite a sort of delicate issue in yeah, a way yeah. it sort of lays it out in a clear and thorough complete way um, but sort of avoiding going down because I'm not sort of bringing sure. it up to talk about all that complicated and very um, you know complex stuff but more about you picking someone that you know you're going to have to like either justify your choice or um, people might have preconceptions this is your first film where you're not tempted to go like okay he might not be right but let's get you know Benedict Cumberbatch or whoever is the hot thing at the time or maybe someone not as yeah. big but or were you just like we've just got to get the right person regardless of what baggage I think or... so because I, I think that was our attitude yeah. uh, and also like in development we would talk sometimes about the character as like what would Hugh Abbott from the thick of it be like mm-hmm. at home like okay. when he's at home yeah, and yeah. so so it, Chris was kind of in my head even when writing the script. Yeah. And, um, you know, we, were, we weren't we were anyone. We were no one. So it was kind of like a big deal to ask Chris. We were like, mm. well, should we just try and get in touch with him and see if he'll do it? And when he was up for meeting and talk about it, we were really excited. You yeah. know, it was... It was just a creative decision, basically. Mm. Um, and Simon, not you know, yeah. for very different reasons. We, I think, a lot of people now know that Simon. There's more to him than you know when yeah. he was known for. Never mind the Buzzcocks. Boz, his stand-up is yeah. very challenging and dark and interesting. He's proved himself to be an actor. I, I yeah. love Simon a lot. But at the time, there's still that thing of, you know, are some people you've got the two biggest names in your thing and yeah. What was the reasoning? Well, I knew Simon mm-hmm. um, kind of socially for, through comedy and we'd wa- been wanting to like work together in some capacity for a mm-hmm. while and he happened to be free. And I think I just found the idea of him uh, as someone sinister mm-hmm. quite exciting yeah. because, you know, he's, he's, very, he's like a sort of lovable, clownish, sensitive sentimental kind yeah. of lyrical stand-up but I just sort of suddenly the idea of that being used to kind of manipulate like, to manipulative yeah. ends or kind of sinister ends I found that Norman Bates-ish maybe type I don't know I found that quite frightening yeah. and he was up for it and again we were just really happy that he was up for it and yeah. it was fun yeah. it was great so you've got another film with Tom yeah um, and what is that about so that is called The Darkest Universe it's about um a girl in her 20s who goes on a canal boat trip with her boyfriend um, and they go missing. And so the lead character is called Alice, played by Teeny Gosh, mm-hmm. who I co-wrote the script with. And her boyfriend is played by Joe Thomas mm-hmm. uh, from The Inbetweeners and Fresh Meat. Uh, and they go on this canal boat trip. They disappear. The film takes place in two timelines. I play Alice's older brother. Uh, and basically, I'm trying to find them uh, to like limited success and it cuts between that journey the search for them and the relationship that the brother and sister had which was kind of for the most part quite fraught mm-hmm. uh, okay. so it's, it's about grief it's kind of comedy drama psycho yeah. little bit um some sci-fi themes in there okay. but it's not a sci-fi film would you would you say it's similar tonish wise to all the stuff you've done to date or um yeah, probably. It's yeah. slightly more, maybe it's slightly more dramatic, like towards drama, if there okay. is like a sort of comedy drama spectrum. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, but we still funny, uh, we think, yeah. we hope anyway. Yeah, yeah. We screened it first at the London Comedy Film Festival, mm-hmm. uh, which was really fun, and people did laugh. 
so there it's definitely a comedy <laughs> in some form but it's also quite um i mean even when things are a comedy it's still you know questionable or subjective or totally so subjective. that's always yeah. a, a question isn't it it's always yeah. like a fi- i mean screenings for comedies I, yeah. I don't know if you feel the same way, but I like something you've made. Yeah, it's terrifying because. Oh yeah. <laughs> have you ever done live comedy? Yeah, when I first moved to London, yeah. Yeah. I did it for a bit. So, so you know that thing that if you're doing a live performance and the audience aren't going for it, then you in your head can go right. Maybe I won't do what I was planning. I'll yeah. slightly change or alter t- to suit the mood or the room. But yeah. You can't do that in a screening. You can't quickly run off and yeah. re-edit the end before they get to the no. end. You know, you just have to sit there and. Yeah. You know, thankfully, most of the time screenings are quite a generous experience. But yeah. I, I totally I know. Um, I often find that I realise halfway through a screening that my body language is absolutely bizarre like i've just been completely sort of contorted skewed yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so tense oh, God. and then it's normally about half an hour in that i'm like just try and sit normally like a normal person <laughs> do uh, you um so you 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 put yourself in a lot of these uh um in the films and the uh, tv show and i loved your perf- i love that uh, i haven't finished watching the series but i love your performance in um Flowers. Um, I, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but it's sort of remnant, reminiscent of um, Bert Kwok a little okay. bit, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> who recently passed away. So there's yeah. a little tribute. But there's something really. It reminds me sort of of 70s comedies a little right. bit. Is that a f- fair thing to say? Uh, well, he's more. He comes from. I grew up in Japan. Uh, well, till I was eight, and then mm-hmm. we moved to England, and. Uh, including uh, sort of recently I like watching Japanese comedy Mm -hmm. uh, and comedy films and stuff and sometimes I share those films with my friends like I've watched a few with Tom for instance Mm -hmm. uh, and I've I really like seeing how people react to it because it is kind of it's not a million miles away but sometimes it can get a bit wacky yeah yeah Uh, I think wacky is a good (laughs) way of describing it and I wanted some of that what kind of comedy do you do (laughs) wacky Um, so, so I knew I wanted some of that flavour to be in Flowers somehow yeah. and in the end Shun which is the character you're talking about sort of became a, the conduit of that but what I will say is that he is kind of an exercise in questioning that archetype yeah. I think and I think if someone else was playing it I pr- it probably wouldn't be quite the same because I was writing it uh, I knew that you know quite soon uh, from quite early on that it was for myself I could be quite confident about yeah, yeah. how to play it and what I was saying and to be in full control of it whereas even if it was like a friend who was you know also Japanese or half Japanese I think it would still have felt slightly different you know asking someone else to do these things yeah. and to behave in a certain way and basically like all the, you'll hopefully see if you get to the end of the series that I'll, I'll all get to of the it. End. Okay, cool. Unless <laughs> something the, happens, that I don't like, know about. Oh, actually, oh, never mind. <laughs> um, all of the characters basically they do question their own archetypes, and you start to find out more about them. And Shun is no exception in that you start to see uh, where he comes from and why he is, how he is, and mm-hmm. why he's sort of so fiercely loyal to okay. the flowers, for instance. I also feel like because it is a show about people living together who are completely disconnected, that he is this strange kind of go-between yeah. that you sort of need to... Ju- he's like the glue in a weird sort of way without them yeah. kind of realising it. I know, know what you mean. I definitely like... Or think the messenger, in a way. Do you know <laughs> yeah, what I mean? Yeah, it's do you know what you going mean. from one room to another and... Yeah. Um, I, think I think it's think a great flavour that somehow on paper you'd probably go, what? So there's this character... But yeah. it completely works. Yeah, well, yeah. I like opposite. I like opposites. Mm-hmm. And seeing how things that are very contrasting when what? you throw them together, you know, what happens. And yeah. I think that maybe is slightly related to what you're saying about how you need a bit of this and a bit of that, mm-hmm. you know. To Now, um, your guilty pleasure, we do this every oh, yeah. week, we have a film, <coughs> we ask people to pick a film that they love, uh, that they think is either underrated or they just know is bad, but they love it anyway. I'm not sure where you stand on this okay. one, whether you think it's underrated or bad, but I really was surprised by this choice of yours. Uh, tell uh, the listeners what you've picked. Well, I chose The Land Before Time. Maybe it's not really a great choice for what this segment is supposed to be. I basically, I felt, I, it was on television a couple of years ago, uh, and I sort of started watching, it was about 20 minutes in, and I found myself just watching it to the end. 
and I felt guilty about how much I enjoy it, basically because <laughs> it's a children's film. Yeah. So that was that's the only reason why it's a guilty pleasure. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really good film and really beautifully made, and it seems to be pretty well loved. I think on the whole by people who've seen it yeah. um, so I maybe so, I mean I almost chose Dumb and Dumber because <laughs> I like that as well uh, but I don't think but that's a guilty pleasure I either think. no uh, okay. I would say well, what I was going to ask you about The Land Before Time which yeah. if people can't remember it's the uh, not. it's not Disney is it but um, I think sure. it's actually Spielberg Spielberg and George exec- Lucas exactly yeah um, and it's Don Bluth did the animation who you'll know all his work from the 80s he did An American Tale and Dog's Dog, where dogs go to heaven. All dogs go to heaven. All dogs go to heaven. So you recognise that style immediately, and um, and I started watching it last night. <laughs> There's no dialogue for the first three minutes, other than a narration, sort of talking about the end of the world, the yeah. dinosaurs, and yeah. and it has this very slow pace. But it's definitely not a family movie. It's a, fa- a kids movie. Yeah. But quite slow and grown up. It's like this weird. I was like, I can't imagine kids now. Loving this film, okay. maybe I'm being um, I don't know. unfair, but I remember loving it as a kid, yeah. and it, it does like some quite intense things happen in it. Mm-hmm. Like the main, ca- it, the main character is like a sort of child brontosaurus <laughs> yeah. called Littlefoot, and a childosaurus. Yeah, his mum, his mum literally dies. Yeah, you know, during, in like the first eight minutes. Yeah. Or something. <laughs> yeah. it's quite horrific. It's, and she's sort of murdered by a Tyrannosaurus Rex mm-hmm. and an earthquake combined. I think. Um, and I don't know, like looking at it, I was reading up just now before going in about <laughs> in how it was room. received and like when it was really just in case you asked me, in case you quizzed me on it. Yeah. And I was interested to see like some people have written about how it, um, you know, it deals with prejudice with, between the different yeah, yeah. kinds of dinosaur of how they... Well, at the beginning, they're like, um, the two baby dinosaurs are trying to play with each other and then the... The father of the three horns says, three horns don't play with long necks. And uh, (laughs) I mean, it was slightly preachy, if I'm to be uh, honest. But um, there was something strangely warm and safe about, I think, the look of it that just took me right back to my childhood. Um, Yeah, and I'm assuming it looks uh, hand-drawn. Yeah, I think so. And... um, the weird thing is, is it was in a time where they didn't get famous people to do the voices for yeah. characters, which is actually a fairly modern thing yeah. to get massive stars. Um, that is like a, what part of the game of watching any animation now is going, oh, who's that? Yeah. Who's that voice? Who's that? <laughs> yeah. I sort of feel sorry for what must have been a huge uh, circuit or maybe a small circuit of voice actors who specialised in doing yeah. animation. And then suddenly they're just getting calls going, no, they're going with uh, Bruce Willis. <laughs> and that, what, in a kids cartoon and <laughs> now it's just taken as red you know yeah. um well uh uh i'm not sure whether it's a guilty play i mean it's maybe it's not i mean i felt guilty people made fun of me yeah. because i immediately like started saying oh the land before time was on and yeah. it's it's amazing i suppose it's like, just because you're an adult that that's yeah. the guilty element of it that yeah, you're but, enjoying a children's but film, it's but. maybe not uh maybe it's cheating i don't know yeah. sorry Maybe it's not um, quite Transformers Three or something. Oh, it's right, not quite as yeah. guilty as that, but yeah, there's a, there's a, it's definitely is. Put it this way: it's a surprising choice. Okay. Knowing your work, I was like, oh, okay, kitty dinosaur <laughs> movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, and to finish off, you uh, your second choice of song. Um, this is called Mountain Song, and I have to say, <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed. I watched the clip of this on uh, YouTube, and this takes us slightly back to what you were saying about enjoying Japanese yeah. humour is that would you yeah. is there a link there I mean this is I'm a, not sure where this is from to be honest I don't it's from a Japanese film called The Taste of Tea mm. which uh, came out quite a while ago and I bought it on a visit to Japan in their equivalent of HMV and literally just based on liking the cover of a DVD great and then it became I think for me quite a sort of formative film to have watched because it was very funny uh, and also quite emotive uh, but also more than anything it combined quite heightened stylized fantastical elements with mm-hmm. extremely naturalistic dialogue and kind of vignettes and I just sort of thought that's 
great yeah they're, they're doing both things and this is a really weird sequence in it uh which i encourage you i encourage you to watch the film and also the taste of tea the taste of yeah. tea check it out um and also youtube this clip of the mountain song mm-hmm. which this is put, just this the, this really <laughs> just put a spring in my step today i tell you especially the towards just, the end it just gets so fun yeah um well thanks very much um for being our guest good luck with the new film Thank um you. and uh people tune into flowers it's still like i said available to stream um and yeah thank you very much will thanks for having Cheers. me screen talk with dan clark on fubar radio this is a fubar radio podcast go to fubarradio.com for more details